Welcome to the podcast where heavy industrial industries meet the venture capital ecosystem, interviewing both thought-leading investors and pioneering founders to better understand the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for digital industrial innovation. Your host is Ty Finley, and this is the Heavy Hitters Podcast. Jim Adler joins us today from San Francisco. Jim is the founder and general partner of Toyota Ventures. And in addition to serving on the board of directors for Toyota Ventures, he also serves as an executive advisor at the Toyota Research Institute. Prior to joining Toyota Ventures, he served as vice president of data and business development for that Toyota Research Institute. And before that, Jim was vice president of products and marketing at Metanautics, a Sequoia Capital and Workday-backed data analytics startup that was acquired by Microsoft. Other experiences include chief privacy privacy officer at Intellius that was acquired by HIG Capital and founder in his own right of a startup called Vote Here. And Jim began his career as a rocket engineer for Lockheed Martin. Jim's on the board of directors for several Toyota Ventures portfolio companies, including Autobrains, Intuition Robotics, Moodify, Revel, and Slamcore, amongst many others Jim is supporting. Uh, Jim, welcome to the Heavy Hitters. It's great to have you on and tell the Toyota Venture story. Thanks for having me, Ty. Right on. Well, I always give that short snippet in my introduction, but g- give the color commentary here on, on your journey and, and what led you to launching Toyota Ventures. Yeah. Uh, so as you uh, mentioned, my career started off at a very big company and then did 25 years so or so of startups. And when I, with the last one, last startup being sold to Microsoft, I tend to do a startup and then I emotionally rest and I do a startup, then I emotionally <laughs> rest. And so Toyota was supposed to be my emotional rest after uh, after the sale of Metanautics to Microsoft. And I, I was hired to uh, run the data and cloud engineering team, which I did for about a year. And I was kind of itching to do maybe another startup or something new. And Toyota Research Institute had this uh, kitty of money to invest in Silicon Valley startups. Uh, I was brought in to a few pitch meetings, and it was clear to me that there really wasn't the process and thesis and objectives and and uh, uh, model for really how Toyota Research should do these investments. And having taken money in my career from many venture capital funds and corporate venture capital funds, I had some pretty hard opinions about how to do corporate VC right. Uh, and so I wrote those into a manifesto. I said, I, I don't know who you're going to have run this thing, but here's how you do it right. And we can talk about some of those principles, but mostly it's really about uh, uh, founder first uh, institutional VC model that has worked well for 70 plus years, has unlocked an incredible amount of innovation into the marketplace. Uh, it's a, it's, it may not be the best model, but it's the model that works. And so, uh, uh, we ran that plan, uh, that manifesto, all the way up the chain uh, in Japan through the, the ranks of Toyota executives, and they loved it. Uh, Kyo Toyota, uh, CEO, thought it, it really was incredibly uh, powerful and would bring uh, the best startup teams closer to Toyota. And so we started with $100 million in 2017, at another 100 in 2019, and another $300 million in 2021, and here we are. 
Oh, well, right on. Well, you certainly weren't resting to write a manifesto and have it run up the chain like that. So, uh, and I don't know if you're built for resting, Jim. All my friends from uh, prior lives, we know we have overlapping in the in the other corporate venture world. So, uh, so let's do this. Let's um, let's get a little bit of context setting and setting the stage for the listeners. Tell us a little bit more about that Toyota Ventures thesis generally to just kick us off here. We'll go in much more detail as we go. Sure. Well, if you're doing an early stage fund, you know what is the mission. And, and our mission was to discover discover what's next for Toyota uh, by helping early stage companies bring their disruptive technologies and business models to market quickly. Uh, startups are experiments in the marketplace. And if Toyota is going to get closer to that uh, disruption, uh, early stage venture capital is a great way to do that. Uh, so we're an early stage fund. Our typical tech size is two to $3 million roughly. Uh, we're, like I said, set up like an institutional VC. So we have follow on, always follow on, assuming the company continues to perform. Uh, currently we have 64 com- 67 companies uh, in the portfolio uh, across two funds, uh, two sets of funds. One is the Frontier uh, Funds, which is focused on AI, autonomy, mobility, robotics, smart cities, FinTech. Uh, and then the climate fund is uh, focused on accelerating Toyota's carbon neutrality goals and is focused on carbon capture and storage, as well as renewable energy and, of course, hydrogen distribution and storage. Right on. Well, again, let's let's parse some of that apart here. Lots of things to yeah. discuss here. Um, and so kicking us off, we're going to take a little bit more of a further deep dive into that strategy behind one of the world's premier OEMs and its Toyota Ventures VC mandate. So as you mentioned today, Toyota Ventures, more than 500 million AUM, and it's across those two funds you mentioned, the Frontier Fund and the Climate Fund. And I'm, I'm going to use your words from a TechCrunch article, as I thought this was really good about your mandate. The mandate, as said, The first mission of the Frontier Fund has always been to discover what's next for Toyota. Toyota pivoted to cars in the 1930s, and Toyota will grow into other businesses in the future. Startups are experiments in the marketplace, and this is the best way for us to understand and get comfortable with where innovations are coming from. Very well said. And Jim, for you guys, that spans AI, autonomy, mobility, robotics, cloud technology, smart city, energy, materials, and even digital health and fintech. So as I take a breath there, I'm sure others would ask, how is such a broad thesis adding strategic value to Toyota? So school us up on this. What was the thinking in expanding that thesis to include categories that are so afield from autonomy and mobility? And why would other corporate VCs um, benefit from thinking as expensive as you guys are? Yeah, this is uh, what every corporate VC struggles with. And we took a broad remit, um, somewhat inspired by Clay Christensen, Innovator's Dilemma, uh, author and and luminary uh, around uh, corporate renewal. And one of the, and I've studied him for decades uh, and and the areas that he researches. And one of his conclusions was that large incumbent incumbent companies often wait too long. Uh, They are loath to make type one errors of commission they're very happy making type two errors of omission. Uh, no one gets fired for what you don't do, but people get in trouble for what you do do that doesn't work. And that corporate dynamic often creates uh, an environment where business units uh, don't really take chances. And and so that was the, the problem we were trying to solve is how do we let 
business units get exposure uh, to this kind of disruption almost against their will. We know it's good <laughs> for them in the long run, but it's not natural for them to do it. And so that was principle one. Principle two was and is we are humble enough to know that we can't predict the future and you can't centrally plan innovation. And so we look at, as, as the quote you mentioned, we look to startups as letting us be up close and personal with the experiments in the marketplace that they're running. Uh, and we wanna take a relatively diverse view uh, of that, those experiments, so that we can learn as we, as they, as they experiment and they explore, we get to go along with them. Uh, and so those two are really our north star, our no north stars for why we're doing this and why we think it's important to bring this innovation closer to Toyota. And then, you know, kind of how we actually attract the best teams is kind of the second half of that. But that's where we're headed. The team does have to be first class to run a great corporate venture capital group. So give us some more color there. That's right. And so certainly, I wanted to do the. I, I wanted to do another startup. So the the way I think about Toyota Ventures is this is my new startup. Uh, it happens to be in a two hundred fifty billion dollar uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Fortune one hundred company with three hundred seventy thousand team members worldwide. But this is a. It's a separate company. We're a GPLP structure. We're we're set up with VC economics, uh, and we really look to our startup customer as an institutional VC. And we have negotiated with Toyota that this is how we operate. And you got 370,000 people in the tank for Toyota. We feel it's important for Toyota, for Toyota Ventures to be in the tank for the startups. And why that's so important, and financially in the tank for the startups, because the only way you attract certainly the best team members for Toyota Ventures out of the venture ecosystem, but also attract the best startups as portfolio companies is trust. We have to trust each other. And I think where corporate venture capital goes sideways is they're not trusted completely by their startup uh, portfolio companies uh, because they're not sure when you make a suggestion in the boardroom, is that because there's a new corporate mandate that has just come down the pipe? Uh, or do you really want the startup to be successful? And so that's why vent the venture capital economic model, which says, hey, if the startup does well, the venture capitalists do well, is so important because everybody around that boardroom table should want the company first and foremost to do their fiduciary duty to make sure the startup is financially successful. And over the last almost six years now, we have a reputation for making sure that we are full-throated, vociferous, dedicated, tenacious supporters of our startups. And that brings the best teams into our world. And let me make one more point. Uh, what that does do is brings not just the money to the startup because everyone's money is green and it spends the same. We also now have this worldwide network of the best auto OEM on the planet uh, 
and its worldwide network and incredible expertise across many uh, areas closer to the startup, either as a partner or as a customer uh, or as a supplier. Uh, and we have a portfolio support team that actually manages those relationships. And for those startups that want to take advantage of that, it's there for them, but not never a requirement. You just absolutely nailed it. When when you talk about being financially aligned at the board level, that is the definition of incentives drive behaviors, and that trust factor is crushed. If it's not, we're all rowing the boat together. And it's not all about financial alignment per se, but that is a that is an auditability that I agree with you, Jim. You guys have a great reputation because we do know what you're going to be recommending is for the best of the startup, not per se the corporate. So um Put that on a bumper sticker for sure, Jim. So maybe the next question, what I want to do is obviously theme of this podcast, digital industrial innovation, however folks define that. Um, but a key theme within your current portfolio is ro robotic enabled innovation. And to me, defined as simply we're bits or meeting, meeting atoms to drive an impact in the physical industrial world. We love it. Promote it all the time. Um, given robotic applications generally do have a hardware component paired with some form of AI-enabled software in their in their business model. Some investors would shy away given there are scaling and go-to-market experience that's required to be successful. And we've talked about this on other episodes of the podcast. Clearly not the case of shying away for Toyota Ventures. So could we chat about your outlook on scaling robotic innovation broken out in the following way? One, what are you looking for at the early stages, simply said? Two, what are the biggest common challenges you face when scaling robotic hardware? And then three, what are more importantly, though, those unfair opportunities that come with those hardware plus software business models? Let's let's chat through that if we could. Yeah, sure. I, those are uh, super important dimensions. Uh, I think your point about uh, uh, the go to market and the difficult in scaling, I think that the reason we are uh, uh, so forward-leaning uh, in in these areas is that we recognize that deep technology that uh, is transformational to industries and to our society does not follow a linear path to maturity. It pa it follows a very stepwise uh, linear path to maturity. So. What that means in, in English is nothing happens for a long time, and then the value pops uh, in magnitude, and then nothing happens for a while, and then it pops again in magnitude. And I think some venture capitalists have gotten a little lazy with nice linear uh, SaaS-type models that uh, the, the revenue uh, is, is generated early, in the company's tenure, uh, and the, the the margins are clear and the metrics are smooth, uh, you got to have a you have to have a more a stronger stomach to do deeper tech, and that's what VCs used to do. I mean, semiconductors are incredibly stepwise uh, value creators, and so. That's sort of the overarching uh, across your points. Now, let me dig into each one. Uh, at the earliest stages, uh, there's there are two things we look for. Uh, one is strong technical leadership. Uh, when you're built, we need builders. At the beginning, you really do need builders and that those that understand how to motivate builders. Uh, when it comes to the application, robotics innovation, uh, 
really needs to deliver practical solutions for real uh, customers that have real problems. Uh, I don't like science experiments. Uh, there's a lot of great research going on. There's other mechanisms to fund research. Venture capital is not one of them. And so I look for those two things. When you go to scale, the strong technical leadership has to sort of find its way to strong business leadership. Uh, where we needed builders, now we need growers uh, of, of businesses. Uh, and the markets they operate in have to be, like I like to say, big, broken, and accessible to disruption. Uh, the, the analogy I love to give because we're doing uh, some uh, agricultural robotic companies in our portfolio, you know, farmers historically don't wake up every morning like enterprise analysts and say, how is technology going to help me uh, farm today? They don't think about that. They don't think like that. But I think that's changing. Agriculture is a huge market. Uh, it's definitely broken. It's not re really doesn't lend itself to innovation, uh, but it's beginning to be more and more accessible to disruption, which we think there is opportunities there. there. There's an old adage that said, you know, the farmer wins the lottery and they ask the farmer, what are you going to do with the, all the all the money from the lottery that you want? And he says, well, I'm just going to keep farming until it's all gone. <laughs> and I think that is really where farming 1.0 was. And now with robotics and AI technologies and technolo technologies moving onto the farm, you're starting to see uh, uh, real efficiencies move into the farm. And, 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 the, and the efficiencies will mean more profitability, better margins, be able to handle larger scale. Uh, we have a company called Burrow that is doing these autonomous platforms uh, to make a picking uh, of fruit much more efficient uh, alongside human uh, harvesters. Uh, it's an incredible company. They're growing incredibly well, uh, both in the United States and internationally. Um, and it's the robot side by side with people is where the efficiency is. And it's it's awesome. Uh, but uh, it's the business leadership that is solving real problems uh, for real customers that the technology is addressing that is actually unlocking the scale. Absolutely. Um, and, and we talked about like those unfair opportunities, anything um, salient that once they've put the time in, the patience is there, they brought on the business leader. How do you usually see that, you know, that harvesting to use the farm analogy? What, yeah. what is that unfair opportunity that comes with all that patience that, that it took to get there? Yeah. Well, I, I think what, what I like about, uh, some of these robotics applications, autonomy applications, is that uh, the hardware buys you the software margins uh, and and the lock-in and some of the digital uh, moat that's around these the this hardware. Uh, so we're used to be you sell a piece of hardware, you walk away, maybe there's a little bit of maintenance there. These systems are now getting better and better, and they're learning with operations, with their operating duty cycle, they're learning all the time. And that generates an opportunity to sell customers uh, better performance, more features, 
and allows them to scale more easily. So it's sort of the, uh, it, it's not unlike the, the razor and blades model where the hardware is, is the razor and the blades are the software. And now with a lot of this new uh, AI foundation models, uh, you're gonna see some of this technology move into robotics, which I'm really excited about. It's quite early because there's not the data yet uh, in the real world to train uh, these robotic systems, but it's coming. Uh, and because these systems do in-context learning, I think there's a lot of opportunity for uh, uh, software services that ride alongside on top of the hardware that was sold uh, earlier in the in the customer lifecycle. Absolutely. And, you know, t on, on top of the compounding data effect you just mentioned, I, I always love to go back to some of our more pure SaaS, you know, SaaS napkin metrics folks. And I don't know, once they've hit the inflection point, if I've seen better net dollar retention and or cohort expansion than I have with robotic deployments at scale, because these legacy incumbents, they're not ripping you out anytime soon if you've made it past pilot purgatory. And don't get me wrong, it's it's a hard stretch to get past. But I think your other point, Jim, you nailed it. It's it's just taking the time to do the homework on these business models. Um, the maturity of the metrics you need to be looking for has has really, you know, there's been a lot of open source information that's is changing the game. I, I reference um, on a prior show, we talked with Leor at Eclipse and what they did with Silicon Valley Bank to really define those metrics you need to be thinking about if there is a hardware component. So it's all out there. And if, if you really do have the patience, like you say, traditional venture to wait it out and watch it scale, an amazing business model to, can sell software margins, get a data moat, all the things you mentioned. So we'll wave the flag together, Jim. I know we've done a bunch of robotic <laughs> investments. So, um, uh, but, but mean it in sincerity. So maybe next question I'll move us on here. Uh, there are two funds as noted above. And so let's, let's chat about the climate fund specifically to round out the chat. Uh, the climate fund focuses on investing in startups that create in quote, scalable solutions for carbon neutrality uh, to support Toyota's goal of reaching carbon neutrality by 2050. Uh, clearly right now there is a tidal wave joining the broader climate and sustainability innovation ecosystem understatement of the year probably which is also a really good thing so tell us a little bit more how toyota ventures likes to define the complementary nature between the climate and frontier funds and then let's segue that into a section we like to call what's hot and what's hype and do you have any thoughts about you know which climate technologies and or innovation approaches are hot and currently being deployed at scale versus Maybe some areas of innovation that are promising, but you know, to use a Gartner term, are overhyped right now and, and need some more commercial activity before they get there. Yeah, I mean, we are super excited about our, our climate fund. We launched it in 2021. It's led by Lisa Coca, our partner on on the on the fund. Uh, she was an EIR at, at uh, Intel, and then she uh, for years was a, a managing director at GE Ventures. Old colleague, uh, Lisa Coco. Yeah, old right colleague now. of yours, I think. That's right. Uh, and we are so uh, grateful to have her. Uh, we've done 15 investments to date uh, since 2021. It's a, it is a hot sector, so I think your your hot and hype uh, uh, question is a good one. Uh, uh, I think the uh, you know we've long invested in frontier technology. Uh, uh, and there is some overlap. Uh, there are some uh, companies in the portfolio that that do overlap. Uh, uh, some of our earliest investments uh, in mobility were electric mobility. Uh, Revel uh, in New York City, San Francisco, a few other countries around the, uh, a few other cities around the country uh, are doing uh, 
uh, electric mopeds, electric uh, ride hailing, uh, main mobility is all electric. Joby is an all electric uh, vertical takeoff and landing vehicle. Uh, so we've done some of that already, but uh, the Climate Fund really opens us up to do battery technology, renewable energy uh, in uh, many, many incarnations. Uh, I think hydrogen is actually, uh, I'm, we're a little contrarian uh, at Toyota, but we, we think that it, that we think hydrogen has a lot of uh, a big future, actually. It's a it's a clean way to concentrate energy. Uh, <clears throat> we think especially for logistics and long haul, uh, it's just hard to get there with battery electric. Uh, we have uh, an investment in universal hydrogen that is bringing uh, hydrogen to air, air, aircraft logistics. Uh, and we have several other hydrogen uh, companies in the portfolio. So uh, we're quite bullish. Uh, I think that even though battery electric vehicles certainly have seen growth, uh, we think that between grid load and uh, uh, metal av metals availability uh, for lithium and nickel and cobalt, it's going to get increasingly expensive as the market share grows. And it might double or triple again, but do we really think every vehicle on the road will be battery electric? Uh, I, I'm quite doubtful. I think there's huge growth and opportunity there. Don't get me wrong, but I, I do feel like they will, there will be opportunities for other powertrains, especially around the world, uh, uh, to get us to uh, carbon neutrality. Uh, I think that that just from a, a, a venture uh, market opportunity perspective, it's a huge, huge worldwide market. And to kind of land on a flavor of the day and say, this will be the solution for the next 100 years, <laughs> It's just kind of arrogant, I think. Uh, now it's got great uh, uh, prospects and 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 traction, uh, and and I love uh, electric vehicles. I love the acceleration. Uh, I love the uh, uh, the ability that uh, you're not you know you're not sitting at a, at a filling station. But I also know that there are certain limitations that are going to make other powertrains as attractive. Uh, so your point about what's hot and what's hype, uh, and I assume you, you're, you're, you're pointing toward uh, climate area because it's certainly a huge area. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing we're, one area we're really excited about uh, is these uh, uh, chemical uh, sectors that uh, accounts for almost 4% of total greenhouse gases uh, through combustion processes. Uh, we think combustion and in uh, in uh, big manufacturing uh, blast furnaces and things like that uh, really need to be addressed. It's, they're just, as I said, hard to abate. They're hard to get rid of. Uh, and there are new combustion technologies coming online. We're investors in one of them, Syzygy Plasmonics, Plasmonics that's doing some of this that uses uh, LED light sources to uh, uh, along with catalysts to do uh, renewable combustion to create chemicals. So no fossil fuels uh, used at all. Uh, and they're actually scaling amazingly well. Uh, they just raised a Series C uh, in November of seven, a little more than 75 million. So we think that's uh, not as appreciated uh, the impact that some of this technology is going to have. Uh, on some of the dirtiest uh, industrial processes that are out there. Uh, 
and if you can clean those up, that'll go in a tremendous uh, way toward uh, reaching carbon neutrality goals. And of course, uh, the auto industry is a, 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 a big consumer of these kinds of combustion processes. So I think that's a pretty hot uh, area and, and one that we're pretty excited about. On what's yeah. overhyped, well, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, what, what do you think um, obviously has some promise, but is in that overhyped bucket for now? Yeah, well, let me also preface that I don't think hype is so bad. <laughs> and uh, uh, venture capitalist, that's correct, Jim. <laughs> right. I mean, and this is why. Uh, if uh, I'm an old control systems engineer and, and I understand underdamped and overdamped uh, uh, step response functions, and I know that if you want to reach your goal as fast as possible, you're going to overshoot your goal. Uh, if you don't want to overshoot your goal and get there quickly, you can have an overdamp system that just sort of creeps its way up to the goal, but doesn't uh, doesn't overshoot it. And so I think there's an analogy here with the markets, where the market wants to find the right solution as quickly as possible, and it floods capital and talent into an area, and ends up, of course, overshooting it. And then, you know, the the classic Gartner hype cycle where it uh, overhypes and then comes down to the trough of disillusionment and then comes back up and finds the equilibrium. That is, I think, a natural part of innovation. Uh, the trick for an investor is you don't <laughs> want to buy at the top of the cycle. You don't want to buy, you don't want to buy during the overshoot time. You want to buy down uh, below the the settling point of where the market uh, value is. So uh, so you need to know which sectors are potentially overhyped, but I think generally it's not as bad as as sometimes uh, we make it out to be. So what do we think is overhyped? Uh, I think the voluntary carbon markets are huge, but I think they are prone to uh, getting overhyped. Uh, uh, and are going to see, uh, you know, complications and headwinds because uh, I think they're 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 prone to abuse. Uh, if you look at measurement reporting and verification, the so-called MRV uh, of these carbon voluntary carbon markets, it's a challenge. And and there has been uh, in the past, in the past 10, 15 years, charges of greenwashing and and double counting uh, carbon credits. And, and I think that keeps potential buyers, like ultimately Toyota, on the sidelines because potential buyers of these credits don't trust them. And I we have an investment in a company called Nori that you mentioned earlier that uh, is trying to address some of this and bring confidence to these carbon credit markets. Uh, I think that that confidence has to rise uh, in order for that uh, value to be realized. And until that happens, I think we're going to see, you know, just a bunch of baits and switches and 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 uh, roiling around the real opportunity that I think are in the voluntary carbon markets. 
Right on. Well, all, all great trends and and hands down the most eloquent way I've ever had someone turn the hype side of this equation into a, an optimistic outlook, Jim. I, <laughs> I, I think that was great. I, I'm going to steal some of that actually going forward. I'm nothing, so. I'm nothing if not optimistic. <laughs> I like it. You have to be, right? Um, well, well, Jim, let's wrap it up here. We always like to bring it back to those founders in the arena, give them some advice, words of wisdom. Uh, so those folks who are thinking about approaching Toyota Ventures, uh, let's give them some advice. Who would you like to split it between um, some keys to success as they enter the chat and or some some common challenges to avoid as they kick off a discussion? I think that, uh, I mean, from early stage companies, we always look for, as I talked about earlier, a balanced and diverse team. Uh, uh, the builders that you need in the beginning uh, need to be balanced by the uh, the growers and the scalers that you're going to need later on. Uh and so we always look for uh, that balance. And uh, and then next, assuming you have the talent, you need motivation. So uh, I always believe that value is is the product of of talent times effort, talent and effort. Uh, if e either one of those are zero, no value. So even if you have this balanced, diverse, talented team, are they mission driven? Driven? Are they thinking about the company all the time? Are they considering all the opportunities that are in front of them uh, seven, you know, 24 seven all the time. Uh, the only super power that a startup has is speed and, uh, and speed and uh, dedication and tenacity. And so we look for teams that uh, have those elements. Uh, as far as uh, things to avoid, uh, uh, I think having scar tissue in this area, uh, it's hard for young companies to work with large enterprises. I would argue it's particularly uh, auto OEMs, although that's starting to change somewhat. Uh, that's why at Toyota Ventures, we do have a portfolio support team that works with our startup uh, founders to help them manage, at least with Toyota, uh, how to uh, enter how to land uh, 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 Toyota as a customer and grow that relationship. Uh, it's not easy. We don't expect any any startup to come in with that that uh, that inform or that uh, expertise, uh, but uh, they they're going to need help. Uh, and I think the last one is really understanding the business model that they're going to market with. And most importantly, the, the the margin profile of that business model uh, and validating it through as many customers as you can. Uh, if the gross margins don't work, the company doesn't work at scale. And uh, I think especially technical founders don't recognize the power of really understanding your unit economics, really understanding uh, your, your gross margins especially, and having a path to profitability uh, by growing uh, out of uh, your net losses. But if your gross uh, gross margins aren't there, you, you can never grow out. Yeah, I think, I think that's great. And it fits with your advice earlier, right? At some point, you got to have the growers on board and yeah. you certainly can't be funding research projects. You have yeah. to know what the industry is going to pay and the margin is a, a key part of that for sure. Great yep. advice. Um, well, let's, let's wrap with a little section we call quick hitters. So if you're ready, I'll start throwing some Q&A out. Yep, let's go. All right. Number one thing you're looking for when you are evaluating a founder early stage in this ecosystem. Um, can I give you two quick ones? Let's do, let's do it. <laughs> have they failed? 
Uh, mm, success one. is a poor teacher and, and, and failure is a very good teacher. And if possible, I want another investor to pay the tuition on that. I don't want to have to pay it. So I like to see founders that have failed. I know when I, after I had failed, I, I kept those lessons with me my entire career. And the second one I'll say is, can they tell a good story? Uh, founders need to tell a good story to recruit team members, sell customers, and close investors. They can't tell a good story. It makes it really tough. Love both of them. Um, what's a resource? Could be book, podcast, blog, whatever you'd recommend to our audience to uh, to follow and get smarter in the ecosystem. Yeah. Uh, again, I'm I, I'm a voracious reader. Uh, uh, let me give you a few. One on the business side. Uh, Better, simpler strategy uh, by Felix Oberholzer Gee uh, is amazing. It talks about customers' willingness to pay uh, versus uh, suppliers' willingness to sell and how you maximize both of those things uh, as you grow your business. Uh, uh, Quit by Annie Duke, uh, former World Series of Poker player. Uh, any startup is always thinking, uh, have have I had enough? Uh, is this market really going to develop for me? Uh, should I continue? Should I do another lap? She has a really good uh, articulation and and uh, uh, process and how to think through. Uh, is Are you just throwing good money after bad uh, as a founder? Should you take that next round? Or maybe this market is just not ready for the disruption you're bringing to it. Uh, so those are two business books. On the On the more technical side, uh, with all this AI, uh, and you know, we used to be focused completely on AI in the early days. There's two books that I love. One is Thousand Brains by Jeff Hawkins, which talks about neuroscience and how it's informing AI. It's really relatively high level, not too technical. Uh, the other one is The Book of Why by Judea Pearl, which gets a lot, is much more technical, but he does talk about the AI of seeing, doing, and imagining, which is sort of the hierarchy of, of artificial intelligence. Right now, we're at the seeing stage. Uh, not, we don't, AI doesn't know how to do anything, conduct experiments and learn. And then the biggest run, one, which humans can do, which is, can you imagine counterfactuals? Can you imagine a world that doesn't exist, exist yet? And I think those really help frame where we are in this, uh, uh, in this AI development trajectory. Love it. Well, clearly I got a lot of catching up to you, Jim. And I, and I do have to give a shout out to Annie Duke. I, I'm supportive of her nonprofit, the Alliance for Decision Education. Mm -hmm. And yep. to know when to quit is a lot of decision science. And regardless of quitting or not, founders, if you haven't seen a lot of Annie's research with thinking and bets, quit. Alliance for Decision Education have to get a plug. I think it's game changing stuff. So she is uh, awesome. She is fantastic. She, she has been fantastic. Uh, one person who should be on the podcast to help us promote the ecosystem, Jim. Yeah, uh, one uh, investor that I, I recently was introduced to is Dove Moran at Grove Ventures in Tel Aviv. Uh, he has uh, been around a long, long time. Uh, and uh, he, uh, for those that don't know Dove, uh, he was the inventor of the USB memory stick uh, for a company called M Systems uh, in the in the 2000s. But just a wealth of entrepreneurial understanding and knowledge. And he's seen it all. And he's just this wonderful, humble uh, tre treasure trove of, of wisdom. And I just think he's he's amazing. Great shop over there. Uh, and finally, best, best way for folks to reach out to you after the podcast. Yeah, well, go to our website, toyota.ventures. Uh, you can, uh, if you're an entrepreneur, you can upload a pitch submission there. Uh, you can follow me and Toyota Ventures on LinkedIn and Twitter. 
there's a bunch of resources uh, on our website, blog posts, videos, all kinds of stuff uh, uh, on our website too. Awesome, Jim. Well, a really fun podcast. We could go on for another hour, I'm sure, but I uh, appreciate you coming on. we got a lot of work to do in these, in these sectors and, and different applications. So uh, look forward to finding more to work with you on. You bet, Ty. Thanks so much. Uh, I really enjoyed it.